I've often said if our founding fathers understood what cable news might be, they may not have written the Constitution the way they did. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you a story. I was interviewing Ted Turner many years ago, and I said to him, knowing what you know now, is cable news the best invention you ever had or the worst? And he sort of looked at me, and I think he was trying to figure out how honest am I about to be? And he sighed and he said, I go back and forth every minute. I can't decide. But I think we now know that it has the seeds of destruction in it. I tell young reporters, hey, we play with dynamite every day here. That's what we do. This can blow up on us in any number of ways. And take your time, learn it, because the shortcuts will end up in explosions. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Josh Tierengill. Josh is the executive producer of the forthcoming documentary, The Perfect Weapon. He previously served as executive vice president at Vice Media, where he produced Vice News Tonight on HBO, as well as Panic, an Emmy-winning documentary that looked at the 2008 financial crisis. Prior to that, he was editor of Bloomberg Business Week and chief content officer of Bloomberg Media. Josh is an innovator who has been at the cutting edge of advances in media, working to make complex issues easily understandable to more people. Josh, welcome to the podcast. We've got a lot to cover today, but I want to start at the beginning. What led you to pursue a career in journalism? Uh, well, one, thanks for having me, Hank. And two, I wish I had some sort of great noble answer, like I'd watched all the president's men. The truth is, like a lot of college students, I tried on a lot of different clothes, right? I was in a performing arts group. I played baseball. And then I sort of arrived, I went to Penn, and I arrived at the Daily Pennsylvanian. And I got to say, my first impression was, what a bunch of dorks. I mean, what a, this group of people so serious. But what I discovered very swiftly was that I actually liked the combination of writing and reporting and being in the swim of, of events. And even in a, you know, a relatively small pond like the University of Pennsylvania, the first time you write something that you see people read is a really interesting feeling. And, it, and to me, it, it worked. Um, it, it, I felt like, oh, I'm in the game. I'm also having some influence on the game. It's creative. And I'm kind of a dork too. And I like being in this room full of people who are having these conversations. So it definitely hooked me. The truth is that in the end, right before I graduated, I was trying to figure out what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? Um, I had a very good friend who had become a comedy writer in LA and he was saying, you know, come out here. We're going to make a go of it. We'll be a partnership. And I had a girlfriend who was in New York. So I went to New York where I had a fact-checking job waiting for me at Rolling Stone. And, you know, it's a side story, but an important one that just contributes to the fact that I've been criminally lucky. The reason I had that job waiting for me at Rolling Stone was because I'd done a story about Rolling Stone's 25th anniversary for the Daily Pennsylvanian. And while I was reporting it and talking about what the magazine was, one of the editors there had asked me, yeah, well, why don't you, you know, tell me what's going on? Tell me what kind of stories you're covering. And it turned out that he stole a couple of my story ideas. And rather than getting really furious about it, I just wrote him a note 
very calmly saying, oh yeah, I noticed, uh, I noticed them in the magazine. Uh, just wonder if there's any place for me. And sure enough, I got offered the lowest job at Rolling Stone. And so that's how I started my career in journalism. And how does fact-checking lead to a story? Did you, did you just sort of write a story and hand it to them and say, why don't you print it? Or So the, the way it worked then, and, and it worked not just at Rolling Stone, but pretty much everywhere back in the mid-90s, which is the era we're talking about, is that somebody would write a story and they would present a folder full of their background research, their transcripts, their notes, and the fact checker, which was me, would grab a red pencil and literally cross out every word once you had determined that it was factually accurate. If it wasn't accurate, you would circle it. You go back to the writer and say, hey, you know, either this word needs to be capitalized or this doesn't track with your notes. And this was standard practice, not just for big cover feature stories of investigative journalism, but for record reviews, for captions. And so there was a meticulousness, even at a place that with a, a freewheeling reputation like Rolling Stone. So I wasn't writing anything. They weren't about to let a 21-year-old at that point in Rolling Stone's development do anything other than fact check. But what I saw there was, whoa, this is, this is serious. And little things, you know, there's a fact checking team of eight to 12 people. You got something wrong, everybody knew it. So the, the meticulousness of that era was really uh, important. So describe your approach to journalism. You know, it, I think it took me a little while to figure out who I was in relation to the profession. But what I like so much about it is that it is a way to express yourself. And for me, I believe in meticulousness. I believe in accuracy. But I also believe in story. And I think that, you know, I've worked at magazines primarily in traditional journalism. And what I like about it is the packaging and the storytelling that you can do. So that you're not just saying... This happened on this date, this happened on this date. You're actually getting a reader inside the sweep of a story. And you know, it can, can get you into interesting territory because obviously there is really no such thing as an objective journalist. We all have prejudices that we bring to bear. My goal was always to have the subject be able to really recognize themselves in the story, not to be able to agree with every conclusion, but to look at the story and say, yep, that's me. I can see how someone would draw those conclusions about me. I agree with this, I don't agree with that. So I like the idea of being able to bring a kind of storytelling aspect to sometimes very complicated facts and complicated narratives. And that's, that's kind of my approach. Yeah, I've watched some of the things you've done. And, uh, you know, I can think of something on Vice, the American factory, where it was just about the Chinese uh, investment in Ohio. And, uh, you know, it was, it was just a fascinating story. And, uh, you saw both sides. Yeah, uh, and I think it, look, it comes from this belief ultimately that very rarely are people one thing and very rarely are you in a situation where there's just good and bad. More often than not, what's interesting is good versus good is when somebody has a perception that what they're doing is good and smart and they run up against someone else who thinks what they're doing is good and smart. That's the way to really complicate a story in an interesting way. It's not to say there aren't good and bad stories. We see them every day in the paper. I'm much more attracted to, to the nuances and the grays. So how has the media landscape changed since you entered? Now, that's, you know, we, we could go on for hours. Well, there. I'll give you, I'll give you a really basic example. I was at Time Magazine. I started in 1999 and it was a, a signal year for Time Magazine. They made a hundred million dollars in profit. And what I saw inside of it was, uh, it was imperial. 
I mean, there were, I used to play a game with one of the fellow junior staff writers. We, we, we would call one in three and we would walk the halls and one in three people, we didn't know what they did. We couldn't figure it out. There were so many people and, <laughs> you know, there was some greatness that came from that level of resource, but there was also some bloat. So the, the magazine, a magazine making a hundred million dollars in profit sounds insane right now. And what I saw, and I worked at time for an amazing nine years, 364 days. What I saw by the end was through a combination of huge, huge secular change and disruption from the internet, some mismanagement and some journalistic, uh, you know, the only way to describe it is, is some journalistic malpractice in a, in a business sense, this great decline. And it really marked me, I will tell you. I mean, I think for the first five years that I was, I was at Time, I was a staff writer and I really lived the life. Um, I had an expense account, I traveled. I had resources. The second five years, I, I came back from London after being the chief European correspondent, and you could feel in the air this massive disruption about to happen. And so I moved into management because I thought, well, if this is about to happen, I want to help guide it through. I had to lay off a ton of people. As a 31, 32-year-old, I was very young at the time in management, it really marks you. Having to tell someone that their career is over, having to give a, a number of people their worst professional day, you know... It, one, it makes you really question, do you believe in what you're doing? Is it worth it? Because nobody wants to be that guy. And two, it really makes you keen to all the challenges of the business. And so I saw the slide. I saw this peak, $100 million in profit. And then when I left time, it, it, it was on the trajectory where you knew it was not going to matter soon. Yep. Amazing. So to what extent is this underlying model for digital media, which some might characterize as a race to the bottom for eyeballs and clicks. To what extent is that responsible for some of the societal divisions we're seeing today? Is media a reflection of that or is it a driver? You know, I think it, it's both in an, on any given day, it's, it's more a reflection or more a driver. But I think what we're really speaking about is that somewhere in the early 2000s, social media took over as the platform of choice for people as how they get their news. And, you know, a lot of your listeners are probably aware of it, but it's worth going into the fact that when you are a publisher, like a Time Inc., you're responsible for every word, comma, period, photo that you publish. And you can be held legally accountable should something be misleading, uh, slanderous, libelous. The way that the FCC set up Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, a social media company is not a publisher, it's a platform. And so what happened is that these platforms were taking the work of publishers and putting them out in the world. And so for the traditional publishers, they were degrading the value of the subscription and of the advertising. But they were also opening the floodgates to anybody coming online. There was no one ultimately responsible for the accuracy, for the slant. And what you got was basically turning news and information into tap water. And as we know, when something's free, people tend to not take great care with it. And so we're all guilty of it. I don't think there's any question of that. On the journalist side, I think one thing that's frequently washed over that shouldn't be is, you know, there's a lot of arrogance in peak 1990s, early 2000 journalism, a lot. Some of that was this belief that the, the good times would go on forever. Look, I think objectively we can all now all say, buying an ad page without knowing anything about the reader of that magazine next to a story 
and putting a flat page about a Cadillac or whatever, that just seems like a terrible way to spend your advertising money. And it seemed like that to me in the 2000s too. We also did a really lousy job, sometimes with, with good intentions, of cutting out smart business people from journalism. You know, there's this famous notion of the, of the wall between uh, church and state, which means that the editorial side of a journalistic entity really should never communicate much about what it's doing to the state side of it, which would be the commercial side. Well, you know, you can take that too far. And so if you were my business partner, Hank, and I said, well, <laughs> Hank, there's some stuff I just can't tell you. You'd say, first of all, this guy's a real jerk. And second of all, you'd say, well, maybe I'll just take my acumen, which is considerable, to a place where I can see the whole picture. And so we lost a lot of talent to Facebook, to Google. Look, I, I used to say all the time, you know, in, in a different era, Sheryl Sandberg would have been Kay Graham. Now she's at Facebook and we don't have any Kay Grahams. So there's a lot of people responsible for it. I would say that the, the, the model and the platform is largely what's driven all of this change. Yeah, and it's been huge. Now, you stick to the facts, and I have seen you relentlessly seeking the truth. Do you sometimes feel like you're fighting a losing battle? Or are you able to use a platform and look at it as a good versus good? You know, for, for years to maintain my sanity as a magazine editor and, and journalism executive, I just had to wake up thinking, look, it's ultimately going to be meritocratic. It's a long game stick with it. I think at this point, I can, I'm, I'm capable of saying that I was a little bit naive. And there's that naivete was grounded in something, you know, we, as this shift was happening, we would frequently meet with Facebook and Google and every social platform. And they'd always deploy some sincere seeming person to come and talk about, oh, well, we're going to do this for journalism and we're going to ele elevate this. You know, those people never lasted more than a year. The <laughs> products they were working for always disappeared. And so at this point, I think it's pretty obvious. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pissed. I'm, I'm really angry at what's happened to my profession because I don't think it's meritocratic. It's not to say there's not great work being done and being recognized, but in general, there is way more noise than signal. And I don't think that journalism is responsible for that. I think that the social platforms, and let's not leave out the television networks, are also responsible for that. Yeah. So your latest project, deals with the problem of cyber warfare with a particular focus on misinformation. How did you come to take on that subject and what have you learned? Well, I've had a, a long and very productive relationship with HBO, largely first through Richard Plepler and now through some other executives there. And so they, they bought the rights to David Sanger's book, The Perfect Weapon. And, and Sanger is just a, an ace reporter for the New York Times, who's done a lot of work on this subject broken a lot of stories about North Korea and Iran. It's not an easy book to turn into a movie because so much happens behind the scenes. You know, when, when you're dealing with misinformation, usually you're dealing with people coding. So the challenge was first and foremost, is it a movie? And with the director, John Maggio, who you know, who's a fantastic director, he sort of trotted out a theory of the case. Is there a way to make this kind of, you know, look at the Bourne Identity and other movies that sort of use information and then take action. Can we do that? So, you know, the fun of making a movie is, it's not to be underrated. It's really cool. It's really great. In this instance, you know, the best part is you're learning all this stuff too. And so much of what I took away from the process of it is that it really is a perfect weapon. David got the title right because it's cheap, because it, it's often undetectable. 
you know, if, if you were to, to make so much of what's happening between countries right now manifest, you would say, oh, we're, at, we're in a world war. We are constantly eroding the internet infrastructure of all of these different countries who are doing it right back at us. You know, think about the Russian aggression in the election. How are we not calling that a war? Well, we're not calling it a war because while people aren't dying and you can't see it, it's sort of hard to know. But every other action would be war. The other thing that, that I think is pretty interesting in the takeaway is, and again, the reason it's a perfect weapon, is because it becomes this expression of national character, right? When you're at war, in a physical war, people are dropping bombs and they're shooting at each other and one bullet looks like another bullet. Here, you know, the U.S. is kind of credited as having started this with Stuxnet, where we, uh, with the Israelis, took Iranian centrifuges offline through cyber terror, which is an amazing, ingenious accomplishment. And so the American ideal was use this as a weapon of defense. Very swiftly, others pile in, and they are not interested in using it as a weapon of defense at all. The Russians, it's about chaos. It's about chaos and humiliation for national governments, uh, and really for, about trolling more than anything else. The North Koreans, they use it for personal humiliation. And we have a great version of this story where the North Koreans hack into the Sony infrastructure and they could have taken the movie offline anytime they wanted to. Instead, what they chose to do is find the most embarrassing emails from the most people they possibly could and then get them released through WikiLeaks. And so time and again, what you're seeing is these countries are using this weapon, which all of them have, to express their national goals and their national character. So that's the interesting part. The terrifying part is, of course, we're nearing election day. And we know that people can access voter rolls People can spread misinformation all over the place. So it was a fascinating project and truly terrifying. Yeah, there's a lot that's terrifying. You were talking about what is the political equivalent of war, and it is war. And cyber theft is the economic equivalent of war. Yeah, and look, the Chinese, you know, as I said, with national character, the Chinese mostly use cyber for IP theft, right? They want to know what vaccines the U.S. might be working on. Numerous American companies have detected incursions where Chinese companies are trying to get, you know, there's a famous example about windmill technology. Huawei, perfect example. However you think it's been played politically, it's an important question. Do you want to give a state-funded Chinese company access to the creation of 5G infrastructure? Basically, it means they could monitor anything at any time and take you offline. We would never in the past have said, here's an idea. Let's let a foreign country make and control access to all of our roads. Well, that is what you're doing if you give a foreign country access to build your 5G infrastructure. So these are huge and important questions. And they've just mostly been obscured. I can't say why there hasn't been a ton of traction around this, but they've mostly been obscured. I think probably because they're complex. Technology is maybe moving faster than our ability to understand it and manage it. It's a huge force for good, but there's big risks which you're getting to. But let's, let's turn to something else that's very immediate, the pandemic. So it's a big challenge to provide accurate, reliable information in a fast-moving public health crisis. How do you think the newsrooms around the world have dealt with this challenge? What could they have done better? You know, I, I think it's important. This is an important moment to separate the various kinds of newsrooms, right? So I think 
there have been a number of fantastic performances from various outlets. I think the Atlantic has been spectacular. New York Times has been fantastic. The Washington Post, a, a bunch of the well-funded places have done amazing, important reporting. And on top of that, they've broken out clear information. So they've really figured out how to, how to get people the most important things. Where I think we've fallen down a little bit, obviously, you know, social media is a place where there's disinformation. We'll move that aside for a minute because I don't think that our mainstream journalism has been responsible for that. Where I think it's a little bit harder to judge is television. Television is a different model, particularly cable news. And I feel for them because they're on the air 24 hours a day and there are many touch points. You have an anchor, you have someone in that anchor's ear, you have graphics, you have footage. And when you're on the air that much, you're gonna mess up. And when you have information that is already very cloudy, where you can only describe what you know at any given point, at some point, even the most responsible aspects of the television cable news media are going to be airing misinformation, are gonna be doing irresponsible things. I mean, Hank, you've been on TV and you know, Sometimes they give you that air to speak and you just can't help yourself. You overstep. You go like, oh God, what did I do? It's just the trap of cable news. And so it's one thing when you actually are in control of the information and know the information. Imagine being in a situation where you're dealing with science. You're an anchor and there's a red light on the camera and somebody's in your ear. So I would say, look, I wish, I wish cable news was better at it. That is not the model. That's not how they're set up to be. And so a responsible, aware media consumer should really be reading more about COVID than watching. Yeah. So what about the election? How is the media doing there? Oh, man. I mean, again, I think there's this big divide between print and TV and that, uh, you know, look, there's, there's certainly Trump, for whatever your audience may think of him, he is an idiot savant, and the savant is not to be underestimated. He's two or three steps ahead of the way most people understand media. He spent his life wanting to be on TV, watching TV. He is some weird level of genius when it comes to the exploitation of TV and understanding the signals that one can send. And so time and again, he's just, he's outfoxed, to pardon the pun, almost all of the cable news media. He is so, so many steps ahead. His events gain traction and awareness that they shouldn't gain. He's good for ratings. He is the ultimate kryptonite to a smart cable news producer. What I've seen in print is some adjustments. You know, in 2016, I think there was this circus element where people really didn't think he could win and he was fun and brash and there were some concerns, but there was a belief that while the establishment uh, controls would come in and he would change, and even for the first year of the presidency, now what I'm seeing is less sort of phony false equivalents, more direct calling what they see. I think, you know, for a long time, the media was paralyzed by a very smart thing that Roger Ailes did, which is say, well, they're, they're subjective, right? And they don't tell you both sides. Well, we're going to tell you both sides. Uh, we report, you decide, right? Sort of very smart positioning, but also put other media on the defensive. I think what that did was for many people, it got them to a place where they believed, well, we have to act like we were born yesterday, <laughs> right? We can't say what we see. We must say what people think we should have seen. And now I see more dispensing of that, more responsibility in the reporting. But he, man, he makes it tough because not only does he find the weaknesses in television media, you know, his, his supporters have expectations, but I would say in general, I've seen better stuff out of print and 
I just try not to watch cable news. Yeah, I've often said if our founding fathers understood what cable news might be, they may not have written the Constitution the way they did. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you a story. I was interviewing Ted Turner many years ago, not that long ago. And I said to him, knowing what you know now, is cable news the best invention you ever had or the worst? And he sort of looked at me, and I think he was trying to figure out how honest am I about to be. And he sighed and he said, I go back and forth every minute. I can't decide. But I think we now know that it has the seeds of destruction in it. So building on that, most of the talk about media these days is doom and gloom, you know, the seeds of destruction. So let me ask a question. What gives you hope? Give me an optimistic case of where journalism might be in 10 years. I'm going to give you a little hope, but not a lot. Um, The hope is ultimately we are beginning to see that people are willing to pay for high quality journalism and they're willing to pay a pretty high rate, right? The New York times is now charging, I think $17 a month. That's more than Netflix. That's, that's a pretty expensive subscription to have in your life for access to news and information. Washington post, same thing, the Atlantic, same thing. We've seen a lot of destruction. It's taken a lot of uh, acreage out of the forest to this fire, but we're beginning to see a couple of green shoots that look strong and promising. And so the fact that people are willing to pay for information, and it's not just those high, you know, those high sort of brands. There's a sports brand called The Athletic, and they do a very conventional thing, which is just report about a bunch of local sports teams with... uh, and I hate to admit it, but that's the first thing I read every morning. Yeah, and look, you shouldn't hate to admit it. You you have a stake in in sports journalism uh, and a stake in sports, but I also think there's something to be said for certainty, and you're getting facts here. So we're beginning to see that, how fast that works to get to the local level. I think that's the real question. Is it, you know, I, I grew up in Baltimore. I read the Baltimore Sun every day. It's very dispiriting. The paper is not what it was. Will they ever get to a place where enough Baltimoreans will spend enough money to support a thriving newsroom? I hope so, but I am very pessimistic about that. On the national front, yeah, I think we'll have four to six really stalwart news organizations. That's not what we used to have. So finally, what advice would you give to any young people listening who might be interested in pursuing a career in journalism or or in media more generally? (sighs) Well, I think the most important thing is you got to defy the market a little bit. And what I mean by that is when, when everything crumbled, you know, there used to be too few gatekeepers. When I was coming to New York out of Penn, there were maybe a dozen places you could go to work. Now, if you want to write or publish, there's hundreds. Many of them are terrible, but they'll have you. And within a year, you'll be a senior editor, right? Um, And that temptation is enormous because your salary will go up a little bit and you'll have a great title. But frankly, it's just like any other profession. You got to put in the time. And so I would say, find a place that makes it hard on you. Find a place that makes you do that kind of meticulous fact-checking allows you lots of repetition to write stories. I mean, I wrote multiple stories a week for Time Magazine for close to 10 years to get to a place where I felt like, okay, I'm a real writer. So you you just have to take your time and take your lumps and not fall for the easy, easy gig. You know, Josh, that is timeless advice for every profession. 
there's temptations for people that want to take shortcuts. You know, I've seen it over and over again, that if you're a young person, you can afford anything other than not to learn. And, you know, I, I saw it, you know, in my own career in banking, you know, and, and unfortunately, I took a job where I started at the beginning you know, doing the grunt work. Yeah. And there's no replacement for it. I mean, in the end, you know, what I, what I ran into at at Vice, which is really, I was, you know, at that, at the time I went over there, I was in my early forties. You would have thought I was Methuselah. I mean, that floor was full of people in their early twenties and the, the best ones would come to me and say, look, I've been overpromoted and I want to go back and I need to learn things because my goal is to be a film director, a television producer, a reporter. And, I, and so I was like, this is incredibly refreshing to hear. And then there were others where it's very clear that you know, they'd taken advantage of circumstance. At a certain point, you, know, you, you outkick your coverage and you're not in a position to actually do the things that your title connotes. It's a terrible place to find yourself. And there's great pressure to take shortcuts because early on, too many people focus on what the title is or what the salary is, and uh, as opposed to focusing on what they're learning. Hank, I'll tell you one last story, which really encapsulates this for me, which is that, so I went to Penn, and one of the people I ran the Daily Pennsylvanian with was a guy named Stephen Glass. And Stephen, when we came out of school, was a phenomenon. Within 18 months, he had written cover stories for the New Republic, he'd written for the New York Times, he'd written for Rolling Stone, and I sat at my desk, fact-checking, getting nowhere, and just, I, I couldn't believe it. It's like, what am I doing wrong? How is this all happening? And then it came out. Steve made up the stories. And it was this incredible, you know, cause celeb. Stephen Glass had, had made it through all of these gatekeepers. He'd fooled fact-checkers by falsifying notes. And, you know, Stephen is a, is a at this point, it's been many, many years, and I, I feel for him. He's, re, he's rehabilitated himself tremendously. But in my life, it was, again, a sort of signal moment where you realize like, oh, there's just no shortcut. And if you take a shortcut with something like a news story, you know, I, I tell young reporters, hey, we play with dynamite every day here. That's what we do. This can blow up on us in any number of ways. And take your time, learn it, because the shortcuts will end up in explosions. Yep, for sure, because you'll get found out eventually, particularly when you're in an area like journalism, there's no place to hide because it's public. So Josh, this has been terrific. I know of no topic which is more important to helping bridge the divisions we have in society today and helping our democracy function better than to understanding how people are getting their facts, how are people are getting the news, finding ways to communicate which are less polarizing. So keep up the good work because there's a lot of work to do. Thanks, Hank. Thank you. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.